The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. It's Monday morning. Did you relax? Did you stop watching US networks? No. Well, you can watch another US network now. Let's give you some headlines on Scorebox. Uh, It's time to heal America. Joe Biden calls for unity in his first speech as president-elect, whilst U.S. futures jump, adding more gains to the post-election rally. I pledge to be a president who seeks not to divide, but unify. Who doesn't see red states and blue states, only sees the United States. Joe Biden preparing executive orders to undo a slew of key Trump policies as the incumbent leader refuses to concede and vows to challenge the legality of the vote. Biden also prepares to name a COVID task force to tackle the virus as infections across the U.S. hit record daily levels, while White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows tests positive. Congratulations pour in for the president-elect with the U.K.'s Boris Johnson and European leaders among the first to welcome him to the White House, while China and Russia remain silent on his appointment. Well, I have to say, I mean, my obsession with U.S. politics has just gone to DEFCON 5. It hasn't lessened at all over the weekend. And uh, Juliana, I now know more about your country than you do. Uh, having just having had uh, MSNBC, CNN, Fox, you name it, I've been looking at the lot constantly from the second I wake up to the second I go. It's been quite a weekend, hasn't it? It certainly has. I, I look forward to all of your, your newfound knowledge about <laughs> America. Well, I'm learning a lot of it from Sky as well. Our sister channel, I cannot believe how many anchors and reporters Sky have over there as well. I mean, I counted at least a dozen as well. But, but, but I mean, the, the unfortunate thing we should tell our viewers is that we did uh, plan this show today to be an outside broadcast. Um, but the bookings for the place we want to go to have gone <laughs> over the... We did try to get in the Four Seasons, Total Landscaping, uh, but, but unfortunately it was booked up because apparently it's got a newfound popularity. No, it was a, an extraordinary story. Whatever else happens, and we can be apolitical about this, not Republican, whatever else happens, we will never not see that press conference again <laughs> from uh, Four Seasons, Total Landscaping. You don't need me to explain, do you, everybody? Anyway, let, let's move on to the facts as well. That's what you want to know. So Joe Biden has called for unity in his first speech as president elect. The former vice president's win means Donald Trump becomes the first one-term president since George Bush Sr. in 1993. After four days of uh, intense counting, Biden was named the projected winner in key battleground states, Pennsylvania and Nevada, or Nevada, as I've been told to say. Uh, He has so far claimed over 75 million votes. That's the most by any presidential candidate in history. By the way, the second most in history is actually the president himself, Mr. Trump, as well. So he did get an enormous vote. We must not forget that in any of our uh, analysis over the next few months and years. Mr. Biden, though, outlined the key issues his administration will face in the short term. What is our mandate? I believe it's this. Americans have called upon us to marshal the forces of decency, the forces of fairness, to marshal the forces of science and the forces of hope in the great battles of our time, the battle to control the virus, the battle to build prosperity, the battle to secure your family's health care, the battle to achieve racial justice and root out systemic racism in this country. 
Uh, the Democrats' apparent win sees Kamala Harris become, uh, make history. She's the first woman to hold the office of vice president. Uh, Harris said voters had welcomed in a new dawn for the United States. Congressman John Lewis, before his passing, wrote, democracy is not a state, it is an act. And what he meant was that America's democracy is not guaranteed. It is only as strong as our willingness to fight for it. When our very democracy was on the ballot in this election, with the very soul of America at stake, and the world watching, you ushered in a new day for America. <laughs> yeah, you're President Trump has so far refused to concede the race, repeatedly claiming without evidence that, quote, illegal votes stole the election. Trump's campaign has filed lawsuits in a number of closely fought states in a bid to overturn the result. In a statement Saturday, the U.S. leader claimed the election is far from over. Let's take a look at markets and how we stand in after the uh, election result has come in over the weekend. And taking a look first at dollar crosses, the U.S. dollar index has hit a 10-week low this morning. Investors uh, seem to be putting more money to work in some other currencies around the world, trade-exposed currencies in particular, uh, on the assumption that perhaps we could be heading toward a calmer environment when it comes to trade relations with change in the White House. So here's a look for you. Sterling trading higher versus the dollar by the tune of about two-tenths of a percent to 131.79. The euro also trading up versus the greenback, up about 0.1% to 118.87. The dollar gaining ground versus the yen, however, that currency pair trades at 103.52. And here's a look for you at the dollar yuan, currently trading around 6.5, uh, 6.57. Let's take a look at equity markets and how the Asian trading session is shaping up. As you can see here, green across the board, very strong strong gains for Asian markets. And again, that narrative taking shape that we could be looking at a very different environment moving forward with regards to trade relations. Of course, it has been a, a bipartisan issue, uh, the, this issue of U.S.-China relations, but many watchers, onlookers, experts thinking that uh, Joe Biden will take a different approach to U.S.-China trade relations. Here you have the Nikkei 225 up by about 2.1 percent, the Hang Seng up one one and a half, and the mainland Chinese index up by about 2 percent as well. U.S. Treasuries. Let's take a look at how bond markets are faring. It was a very turbulent week for Treasuries, the most volatile week since March when we had that pandemic uh, news rocking markets. And currently, this is where we stand. The U.S. 10-year note trading with a yield of 0.8118%, the five-year 0.357%, the two-year holding steady at 0.15%. Oil markets getting a bit of a boost this morning. Let's take a look at where we stand. The WTI price up 2.75% to $38 a barrel. Brent also trading more firmly this morning, up by about 2.6%. And interestingly, though we are seeing more appetite for risk assets, we're also seeing a bit of demand for gold this morning, up by about 0.5% to 1961. 
Opening calls. How are we looking for Europe? Well, let's uh, take a look. We've got more strong gains on the board. This comes after a very strong week for European equities. The main benchmark, the stock 600, gained about 7%, breaking a three-week losing streak, its best weekly performance since May, and the gains are set to continue. So the German index set for a more than 200-point rise at the open. According to these initial levels, the FTSE, one, FTSE MIB over in Italy also looking at about 300 points worth of gains. The FTSE MIB was the outperformer last week, gaining about 10%. So very strong gains already, and markets seem to be looking to build on those gains. Finally, let's take a look at U.S. futures, how we're looking for the opening of Wall Street, and more green for Wall Street as well. The Dow Jones looking at a triple-digit rise at the open. The Nasdaq also looking at more gains, and the S&P 500 as well. And again, this follows a very strong week last week, with the Nasdaq rising about 9%, and the S&P 500 and the Dow rising 7% apiece. The Senate race is ongoing, with Republicans and Democrats currently tied with 48 seats each. The GOP is expected to claim victory in Alaska and North Carolina, but Georgia's two seats are set for potential runoff elections in January. The outcome could dictate which party claims control of Congress. In the event of a 50-50 split, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris would have the tie-breaking vote. Rashad Rishi, the Democratic strategist and former director of the Democratic Party in Georgia, joins us now. Great to have you on the program, uh, especially today as we look ahead. One of the major questions for uh, markets is what happens to the Senate? Does it remain in control of Republicans? And that is going to come down to those two seats in Georgia. What's your take? Where do you see those two seats landing? Well, I got to tell you this, Democrats have a great opportunity to tip the scale here in favor of a progressive agenda. You have Dr. Raphael Warnock in a Senate runoff. You also have John Ossoff, a Democrat also in a Senate, Senate runoff. Here's the distinction. The state of Georgia will be the only state in the United States of America and the only state in history to have two runoff U.S. Senate races at the exact same time. Here's what's going to happen. A lot of money is going to come into this state. A lot of eyes will be on this state. And I predict that both Ossoff and Warnock will out fundraise their political opponents on the Republican side. Joe Biden has already proven that Georgia is a viable state for a Democratic takeover. This is going to create a significant change in not only how the Senate looks, but also how you can win the presidency as a Democrat in America. In terms of the the vote within Georgia for the presidential race, much tighter than many had expected, a lot um, attributing that success to um, uh, Ms. Abrams and the work that she's done in the state. How would you uh, characterize the turnout we've seen from Democrats in the state of Georgia? Does this represent a longer standing shift, do you think, for the state of Georgia and the way that they're likely to politically lean moving forward? I will say this, I actually think Georgia has been a democratic state for a very long time. The issue was performance. Democrats were unable to get certain voters to actually show up and vote, even though the population was always here. The registered voter numbers were always in the state. However, they were not showing up and voting consistently. When Stacey Abrams ran for governor, she came within less than 1% of actually winning as a black female Democrat in a very, very Southern state. Well, remember, before she ran for governor, she created a nonprofit that registered a record number of new voters 
years, engaged them, ran for governor. They were activated. They voted for her. She almost won. Without her activation and the work of so many others that were grassroots operators, you would not have a Joe Biden this close and possibly now a Joe Biden victory in the state of Georgia. So it definitely shattered that ceiling of performance-based voting where now Democrats are showing up when typically they would be sporadic voters. Rashad, really, really good to have you on today. So thank you very much indeed. Look, I, I, have, I have my concerns. 71 million Americans, the most ever for a sitting president, voted uh, for uh, the president. And obviously 75 million, the popular vote going to the Democrats, to Mr. Biden as well. But I remember the hope that the Democrats had last time that Mr. Biden was sworn in in 2008, the first time round with Mr. Obama. I remember the speech. I was actually in Abu Dhabi. I remember watching uh, the president uh, have his Faith in America future speech as well. Why are things different this time, Rashad? Well, this is a more polarized country than before. And I know Joe Biden got up and he made his great unity speech about bringing this country together. And he means that he is an institutionalist. He believes in this greater moral authority of the presidency. And that's a great thing. But here's the truth of the matter. The predictions were wrong. Many predicted that this would be a blue wave, a Democratic landslide, that Democrats would pick up Senate seats, beat congressional uh, Republicans. It did not happen. They held their own. This is still a deeply divided nation. Joe Biden and Senator Harris will have a lot of work to do to bring this country together. And I would dare say it may not happen within the next four years. Within the next four years, I mean, look, I would say they've even got two years before things start getting interesting. And we're already thinking about the midterms, even just with the in the foothills of finalizing the presidential election as well. Look, I spoke to um, uh, Paul Krugman over the weekend. I did an interview with him, which actually we're not playing out till Tuesday. But I can tell you one of the things he said is that the president, the actual president we still have at the moment, rather than the um, uh, prospective president, is still going to frame a large amount of the debate and about the political rhetoric going forward. How big a presence do you believe that Donald Trump Trump will still be in American politics going forward. Let me make this very clear. Uh, Trumpites will remain in place. This Trumpian political dynamic that Donald Trump created while being president will not go anywhere. And I don't think Trump is going to bow out gracefully. I say this, he's not going to make a concession speech no matter what happens. And he may actually run for president again in 2024. So this this sentiment, this division in the United States is still here. And it's going to take a lot of soul searching and a lot of hard work by people who are willing to go beyond the partisan conversation and talk about issues that actually progress the agenda of those who have been disenfranchised, those who have had adverse contact with the criminal justice system, those that need health care. It has to center around issues rather than center around the tribalism of partisan politics only. Uh, Rashad, we've all been watching closely the rest of the Republican Party in terms of their reaction to the election result. And over the weekend, we heard from Mitt Romney. He has spoken out, I think it's fair to say, uh, around President Trump's rhetoric that he's used, uh, these false uh, claims of voter fraud and the like. But we haven't heard from many other senior Republicans. They've really stood by. They haven't congratulated Joe Biden and they haven't uh, condemned President Trump for some of these allegations. What, where do you see the Republican Party heading uh, with Joe Biden in the White House? Well, they're still scared of Trump, okay? Republicans who are silent, they are the ones who know the truth and they are afraid to say it. Everyone knows that Donald Trump 
will no longer be president after January 20th of next year. That's when the transfer of power has to happen. However, he is still the president. He has a lot of power and he remains politically popular with the Republican base. And there are many Republicans who are unwilling to become the target of Donald Trump because Trump does not play fair even against those who are within his own party structure. So you see this fear exuding from them. I call it cowardness, but you see this fear exuding from them even when he is the lame duck president of the United States. One more for me, Rashad, as well. What about Nancy Pelosi and, and the performance in the House as well? There was a, a lot of disappointment that actually the Democratic Party or within the Democratic Party that they couldn't hold on to seats gained previously as well in terms of the absolute numbers. Is there question marks over the future of Nancy Pelosi? I think Nancy Pelosi is solidified. I don't think there's any question about her leadership moving forward. She will have challenges still, especially from Democrats from the Midwest. I think they're going to launch another campaign against her. However, uh, she still has the credit of uh, flipping uh, the Congress during the last midterm election. I think she's still a very powerful ally to Joe Biden and Senator Harris. And remember, a lot of the campaign strategy adopted by the Democratic platform, the early voting, absentee voting, making a plan that came from Nancy Pelosi. So she still has uh, power in the, uh, in the House, and I think she's going to remain in position of leadership. Rashad, it's only quarter past one in the morning. You're doing very well, my friend. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. <laughs> Thank you. So much energy. Okay, brilliant. Rashad Rishi, who is the uh, Democratic strategist, former director of the Democratic Party in Georgia. And just say, for more on the uh, market move, uh, which we're expecting, which we've had already, to Mr. Biden's win, as well as what it means for certain sectors in the long term, head to CNBC.com. Right, SoftBank numbers. That's right. We've got uh, some SoftBank numbers crossing the tape just now. So let me break down for you the Q2 earnings. Uh, SoftBank Group said today that its $100 billion Vision Funds portfolio has recovered to above acquisition price as the fund benefits from a broader upswing in tech valuations. Uh, the fund's $75 billion investment in 83 startups was worth $76.4 billion at the end of September. Um, in terms of the further detail we've got from them, uh, the Vision Fund 2's $2.6 billion investment in 13 startups, that was worth $7.6 billion at the end of September. Um, they have booked a loss of 131.7 billion yen on investment on listed shares. So that's the listed portion of their portfolio. The fair value of, of derivatives at the end of September was 2.7 billion. The, uh, the fund has um, uh, 2.6, once again, 2.6 billion in 13 startups. That's Vision to the Vision Fund 2's numbers at this stage. Uh, so those are the numbers from SoftBank. And the key here, the key takeaway uh, seems to be that the the $100 billion Vision Fund's portfolio is now back above its acquisition price. So the upswing in tech has benefited SoftBank. So hang on, let me get this right. So they're back up to pretty much um, flat P&L, yeah? And yet the Nasdaq's up 38.5%, a big one, 32.6%. The Nasdaq 100 is up 38.5%. So they've got themselves to flat, despite the fact that technology, big names, which includes in their portfolio, is up 38%. Maybe they should stop pretending to be hedge funds. That's a, it's, a, it's difficult when you put it in context like that, but it is obviously really, been is a it? roller Nasdaq's coaster. Nasdaq's up over here, they're here.
It's been a roller coaster year for them with plenty of their investments souring. In terms of the listed stocks that they do own, they've listed them. And to your point about the rally we've seen in these tech stocks, their listed investments include Amazon, Microsoft, and Facebook. So I guess if you want so access to those, have they got their unicorns wrong? Have they got their unlisted stuff wrong? Or, or is there a massive revaluation going on the unlisted stuff? Or are they, they're too busy playing hedge fund to actually look at the real valuation of this stuff? It's interesting to see how it's... I mean, that's that's not good enough, is it? If, if, if the listed market is up between 32 mm. and 38 percent, which any one of our viewers could get via an ETF, they're only back to flat because of what they've been doing. They've been mucking around on WeWork or mucking around on hedge fund stuff or what? You know, it's just crazy. And it obviously could come down to timing as well. If they got into these stocks late and they had spent much more of their investment, much more of their focus on things like WeWork previously, then obviously they're going to be underperforming. Anyway, what do I know? Uh, thank you, Juliana. Uh, coming up on the show, after four tumultuous years of President Trump, uh, European leaders congratulating Joe Biden on his uh, election victory. We'll get the latest reactions from Paris and Berlin next. And I believe there's a great podcast today. There certainly is. You can stay on top of all the latest market reaction to Joe Biden's election victory by listening to the Squawk Box podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back. European leaders have largely acknowledged Joe Biden's victory in the U.S. presidential elections. The U.K. Prime Minister Boris Johnson was amongst the first heads of state to congratulate the president-elect, affirming the two countries' close relationship. ECB President Christine Lagarde said she uh, looked forward to working with the new presidential team to tackle challenges ahead. Oh, very interesting to see how... The ECB and the administration work together. That's a funny one. Uh, anyway, and uh, according to uh, EU Council President Charles Michel, uh, Europe will aim to continue engaging the US on international trade and other multilateral topics. The European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen uh, said she looks forward to working with the incoming presidential team, outlining some of the more pressing issues that lie ahead for transatlantic relations. Together, we will address pressing global challenges. The corona pandemic and its economic consequences, climate change and the loss of biodiversity, the necessary rule book for the digital economy and society, global security, and the reform of the rules-based multilateral system. I look forward to driving this global agenda together with the next president of the United States, Joe Biden. Well, Charlotte and Annetta join us with more. And Annetta, before we get to you and those very awkward moments between Merkel and Trump uh, over various issues, including uh, Nord Stream 2 and um, defence spending. But Charlotte, let's get to you first. Who can forget the show of machismo between Presidents Macron and Trump and those meaty handshakes where neither would let go? I presume it's not going to be the same with Biden and, uh, and Macron. 
You're right. I guess that sums up everything. We have this weird, awkward relationship between Trump and Macron. And there's a hope that there will be a more normalized, a more classic relationship uh, across the two countries. So when we uh, the, the decision came out, the, the announcement came out that uh, Joe Biden had won the election, you had some reaction, of course, coming from France, like the socialist May of Paris, Anne Hidalgo, saying, welcome back, America, in English, in her tweet online. Well, the tweet for President Macron was much more neutral, just saying the Americans have chosen their president. Congratulations, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris. We have a lot um, to do to overcome today's challenges. Let's work together. Something much more neutral. But as you say, there's a lot of history there, a lot of history between Macron and Trump. Um, president Macron really tried to charm uh, Trump. He was his guest of honor of his first Bastille Day, and President Trump apparently was very impressed so much so that he wanted to do his own military parade uh, back in Washington after uh, attending Bastille Day. Uh, but it didn't work. And of course, all these attempts from uh, President Macron to keep the US on the multilateral level, stay within the Paris Climate Agreement, stay uh, in the Iran nuclear deal. But of course, it failed. And one of the very key sore points as well was the tech tax that the French government put in place on uh, tech companies, of course, affecting mainly some of the, the US giant. And that created a lot of tension between the two countries. There was also on top the Airbus uh, subsidies with the WTO ruling allowing the US to put some taxes. And while Europe was trying and France in particular was trying to hold on and try to negotiate a solution, a problem that came before the Trump administration, but the Trump administration didn't want to discuss and just put on some tariffs, in particular 25% tariffs on French wine, which he really hurt there for uh, the French economy in particular. Uh, so now deep down with this election of Joe Biden, well, they know that the geopolitical realities are not changing. And we heard that, for example, from the finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, over the weekend. And we said, look, uh, let us have no illusion. The geopolitical realities will not change, but there will be a less aggressive attitude. And that's the hope here, that it will be a more normalized, a more predictable transatlantic relation with uh, Joe Biden in place. And there's also an element like Anthony Blinken, that's one of the key advisors to Joe Biden, grew up in France, spent his, all his teenage years in France. There's some elements here that the French administration will see as positive signs uh, for the future. Now, Macron will try to place himself as a key partner in Europe, while we know that the relationship between Biden and Boris Johnson will not be very warm and that Merkel is on her way out. Now, Macron will try to place himself as a key interlocutor for Biden in Europe. Another domestic front is also the populist side, the champion for the populist side. So it's good news for Macron just 18 months before his election here, welcoming this election from Joe Biden on the, on the Macron front, no doubt, guys. Thank you very much indeed. But Annetta, here's the problem. Despite the fact that there will probably be a change in style or probably a change in tone between Messrs Biden and Trump as well, we know that those same issues about where... Uh, Europe and specifically Germany gets its energy from. We know that Nord Stream 2 is still a bugbear across the political spectrum in the US. We know that German defence spending is still a very, very big issue for Democrats as much as Republicans as well. So yes, a change in style, but what about change in substance in the relationship? I guess there will also be a change in substance, but you have been picking out the two contentious issues which are still on the table. And yes, defense spending will again be a topic and Nord Stream 2 will stick to be very contentious issues between issue between Germany and the United States. But I can only repeat what Charlotte was saying. It will be less aggressive in the tone, most likely will be less aggressive. And perhaps there might be some more political 
horse trading, which is then um, working in the end. That's at least the hope in Berlin. Angela Merkel has been working together with Barack Obama very successfully. And uh, of course, Joe Biden was his vice president. So she has some experience to work with him together already. And it did work quite well. So um Set aside those two contentious issues, especially the withdrawal of a 30 or one third of soldiers from Germany is uh, quite critical for some regions here in Germany. And the other issues like trade, for example, it's most likely a lot better going forward with the Biden administration. And that is um, that was a major concern, as we know, to the German economy. So bottom line, even the foreign minister Heiko Maas was presenting or offering a new deal to the United States, which also could mean a joint response to China, for example, and a joint approach to energy politics. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.